You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. And a couple of things before we get into this episode today. Uh, First, my thanks to Angel Comedy for once again providing me space to record uh, and being brilliant and benevolent in the world of comedy. If you're in London and you're a new or wannabe comic and you are not hooked up with everything that Angel Comedy has to offer, their writing gym and all sorts of opportunities to see brilliant comics and to perform yourself, uh, then you should find out more about them. So thank you to them as ever. Uh, A quick final push for Cambridge, which, as you hear this, will be happening either tomorrow or at some point in the distant past. You can go to comedianscomedian.com slash tour to see the very final outing of my show, End Of, on tour. It's the end of, end of, and I cannot wait. And I'm really hoping it doesn't snow because it's it's a really big thing. I've been looking forward to it for ages and the weather forecast is horrific. And I need to get from Bristol to Cambridge and back, if you can believe that. So come along to that if you are able. It'd be lovely to see you there. Now, today I am talking to Ishan Akbar. He is a brilliant comic, a lovely man. I regard him as one of mine. I think he's a student of this podcast to some extent. And uh, we are going to be talking about his uh, fascinating previous careers, not just in wealth management, but also in government policymaking, as well as his disappointment in finding out that comedy is no longer anti-establishment and that comedians are, in his words, a precious bunch. There's a lot of really good gear here. And if you're a member of the Insiders Club, uh, which you can join at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, if you are not yet a member, Ishan outlines some, I mean, genuinely brilliant parallels with comedy. We get into a discussion of his types of jokes, which you could look at as, for example, Bitcoin jokes, treasury bond jokes, and investment jokes. And if you already know about jokes, you can use it as a sort of a a primer so that you can understand finance better. We do something similar, drawing a link between uh, policymaking and comedy via analysis of two very different ideas about what an audience is. It is proper. Do you remember the um, uh, Do you remember the Paul Foot extras? If you're an insider and you're listening to this, you remember him taking to taking a part in this sort of exploding the diagram of his seven types of joke. It's a bit like that, but for finance, it's genuinely fascinating. And you can find that at comedianscomedian.com/insiders. Now, though. I'm just going to offer you a tiny warning before we get stuck in. We often talk about mental health on this podcast, but I'm going to give you a content warning because our conversation in this episode strays briefly once or twice into discussion of a suicide attempt. With that said, this is a really exciting conversation with a lot of candor 
And Ishan very kindly let me challenge him on some of his preconceptions of himself, probably because we have a bit of a connection. So I felt like I could push him more than I ordinarily would with a guest. You remember the Tom Tuck and Alfie Brown episodes where I'm basically talking to someone I love. uh, And so I feel like I can kind of get a bit more stuck into the the viscera of what they're talking about than I otherwise might. Look, what I'm saying is I might seem a bit annoying to you in the latter part of this episode, but he was cool with it. Here's Ishan Akbar. What are you doing this week in comedy? How's com- how are you doing? What are you up to? Okay, what sorts week? of things are you doing? So um, I've just had a podcast with the BBC called But Where Are You Really From? Mm-hmm. The first series just came to an end. Okay. And they've asked us to reformat it into a radio show. Okay. So in January and February, we're doing every Saturday for, for two months. Okay. Me, Sunil Patel, and Nima Dedra, who's an actress, comic actress. Okay. So today I was recording a, um, for this Saturday's show. They yeah. just want us to cover this. So I did that today. Went to the BBC Radio Talent Party. Nice. Just before I came here. Excellent. Uh, Paul Merton and Jack D were there. Oh, great. Did we exchange words? No. No. <laughs> no, but I, I saw them. Across there, the some people are sort of inviolable, aren't they? I think some yeah. people like Merton. I would just turn to dust if I was in a row. I've spoken to him once or twice, but... Yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah, they're kind of, they're, they seem like the, the, because they've been around a long time in terms of just as comedians and performers, but they are the granddaddies of totally. British comedy, aren't they? Totally. And if you look at someone like Paul Merton, I'm calling him Merton casually, yeah. as, if I'm, as if I'm booking him or something. Um, but uh, like some of his jokes are kind of hardwired into my brain from when I was a squit. Do you know what right, I mean? When yeah, I was pre-comedian. Yeah. I think anyone that you kind of latched onto and learnt their act, like Lenny Henry, I can't be in a room with Lenny Henry. I freak out. I'd I, be like yeah. that with Lee Evans. Okay, is he one of yours? Yeah, okay. Lee Evans is my one. Like, before I even, even thought about comedy as a thing that I could possibly do, Lee Evans was the guy I remember. He's walking like a crab on stage. Oh, absolutely blew me away. And you, you are one of us who came to comedy late, having done something beforehand. Because yeah. I think of you as, I suppose, I suppose because we first met uh, when you were doing a competition that I was judging, yeah. I think of you as way younger than me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, like, yeah. but you, you would have been one of the oldest people in that competition, well, that you? helps, you. you were, you're old enough to I have was a career first. Yeah, I was 29. Yeah, you weren't an 18-year-old yeah. no, with kind of bright eyes and everyone else hating Elliot you. Still in the final was, he was 17. Yeah, right. Yeah, Elliot Steele was in the final. He was a 17-year-old. Then again, with Elliot, you don't know how old he is because he keeps keeps the same age for a few years. <laughs> but he was 17 in that final. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'd, I'd worked in banking. I'd worked in government. Uh, at the time when I was doing So You Think You're Funny, I was a government policy advisor. Okay. And then when I quit working full-time to do stand-up full-time, I was a speechwriter to the CEO in a bank. We've got to spend a little bit of time on that. I recognise that this is your old life. But, okay, A, in banking, what does that mean? What did you do? I was a private banker to celebrities. So I would manage the investments and wealth of footballers, actors, actresses. Uh, There was a comedian. Oh, my God. On my books. Obviously, you won't identify that person, but have you encountered them since? And yes. do they remember you? Well, they saw me in the loft bar where all these <laughs> awful conversations happen <laughs> up in Edinburgh. They saw me across. And they hadn't... They, I'd seen them maybe twice uh, when I was their uh, banker. Okay. I spent most of the time talking to them on, over the phone. And this person was looking at me and kind of squinting, kind of familiarity, what's going on. <laughs> and I walked up and just, you know, quoted the bank and the years that I was working there. Yeah. And they said, you don't say a word to anyone. <laughs> 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 
What an unusual, what an absolutely unique, I would imagine, yeah. first experience of a comedian. Yeah. Because you weren't a comic at that time. No, and it was nowhere near on my radar at all. And did it, did, like, often if someone is friends with a comic or goes out with a comic or something, and then that's, there's like a, there's somewhere along the stage of one's own development where you realise, oh, people are comedians, that's a thing. Yeah. And that ignites in oneself, not, not the desire necessarily to do it, but just the recognition that, oh, it's maybe not this magical, intangible thing. It's just a thing people do. Did that play any part in that for you, kind of working with a, or for a comedian in a financial way, make you go, oh, this is a bit more of a an actual job than a pie in the sky thing. I mean, the thing is, is this you know, this person had a lot of money to open to open, to give you context to open a bank account with me back then. You needed at least two million pounds in investable assets mm-hmm. or an annual income of two hundred and fifty thousand mm-hmm. pounds. So we're dealing with you know really wealthy individuals, and this person. When I say transcended comedy, what I meant, what I mean is they were they were more than just a stand-up. They were a host. They had books. They had all sorts of things going on. And I'm going to use a banking phrase here, which might come up later on the podcast. And it's they diversified their portfolio. Yeah, right. Uh, which I think a lot of comedians need to do nowadays. But we'll talk about that in a minute. But he, this person definitely was someone who had diversified their portfolio to the point where they weren't just a stand-up. Yeah. So actually, the way I viewed this person was more than just a stand-up. The idea that stand-up alone would be enough for them to have the kind of wealth and influence they ended up having sure. wasn't something I had quite twigged until much later. Because I think, for me, that generation of stand-ups just being stand-ups and making the kind of money that they did is is over. I yeah. think it probably ended with McIntyre and Flanagan, probably. I can't... Bridges, to an extent, that arena-level comedian. Mm-hmm. But now I don't know who would be an arena-level comedian just doing stand-up. Yeah, because everyone is so diversified now. Because yeah. if you are that famous and you don't exploit it through every possible medium, yes. Like, I'm not saying you're an idiot. There are probably people out there who are like, no, I'm. You know, maybe we don't know them. Maybe they're in other countries. Yeah. But people are like, I'm a purist. This is what I do. Yeah, and it must drive everyone around them insane because yeah. obviously you should have a podcast and a book and a you know, yeah, obviously yeah. and a children's book. You know that yeah. thing where um, I saw Frankie Boyle's tweet about when the Prince Andrew thing happened, yeah. and on the same day, David Williams released the Beast of Buckingham Palace. Lovely, lovely Beautiful. But you know, you you as you say, diversity of portfolio. Yeah. Now you say we'll come back to that later on. That concept is yeah. that because you think that's something that you have done or something that you aim to do. It's certainly I'm tr- something I'm trying to do. Um, okay. I. I I do stand up. I love stand up. I've fallen in love with stand up. It was never something that was ever on the cards. You know, I, I did all these serious jobs, and at the time, I was considering becoming a broadcast journalist. So I was recording a show reel, and the guy said, "You're quite funny. You should try stand up." And I was like, "That's for celebrities. Normal people don't do stand up. That's ridiculous." Uh, did a short course uh, called the Comedy School in Camden, December December 2013. Mm-hmm. Did the one showcase. And then I would tell people at parties that I'd done stand-up. And it was actually my brother who was <laughs> oh, like... Oh, I've met you. Yeah. <laughs> I was that guy. And then my brother was like, you can't just go around saying you've done stand-up you've done one gig. You've got to book, like, more. So I booked 10 gigs, two of which were Say so You Think You're Funny and a couple of other competitions. Um, and that's how stand-up kind of... It kind of chose me. Okay. And then, you know, a year later, I got signed by Christian, Christian Knowles. And two weeks after that, I was warming up for Mickey Flanagan on his warm-up tour. Yeah. And at that point, I was like, oh, okay, this is a thing I need to do. 
But since then, the banking part of my brain has realised that the outlets for comedians nowadays is diverse. You know, so now I'm doing the podcast, I'm working on a film script, I'm working on a sitcom, um, working on a novel, which I've been working on for a long time. But now, because I have some kind of public profile on account of being a comedian, I feel like I have a bit more cachet to be able to go towards uh, publishers and say, hey, here's a serious dramatised aspect of my life that you might want to publish. So it's definitely something I keep my mind on, which is that I want to be in this game for a long time, for the rest of my life. And for me to be able to do that, I need to showcase my talents across a whole range of uh, products. You know, they're, they're products. We're putting out products out there. So that's what I'm trying to do. What I love about talking to you is that not only have you got the um, the work ethic to do all of these things and get on with them, mm. and the vision to very, very early in your career. This is what you, what year was it that you did? So uh, you March 2014, 8th of March 2014, I started. 2014. So yeah. here we are at the end of 2019. Yeah. Go, you've, you've packed in a lot, right? You've had yeah. three Edinburgh hours. Yeah, three Edinburgh hours. So you've hit the ground running. You've gone, these are the things I need to do. Tick, 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 tick. I'm yeah. doing these things. Yeah. I don't mean to suggest that's mercenary, but yeah. you know, you've, you've got your skates on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you've got a vision for what needs to be done. But there's also, I sort of feel like um, you you don't seem in your description of those things to, you, I feel like you are unencumbered, which I feel like is a sort of banking expression I'm misusing. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like, it, you, it doesn't seem to me like, they're, like you've spent much time biting your nails or worrying about what to do next. Uh, that's probably true to say. I think naivety plays a big part. You know, when I apply to say you think you're funny... <laughs> I, just, I just thought of the phrase weaponized naivety. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, basically, that. the truth is, and I said this to my friends, when I entered say you think you're funny, I was literally just answering that question, which was say you think you're funny. And I was like, yeah, let's just enter it. And since then, everything I've done, you know, I've... It's interesting that you say you think I have a vision. I, I, I may have a vision, but I definitely don't have targets. I've never set any targets for myself. And it's always been, this is what I'm going to do now and see what happens. Do you, do you mean that within comedy or within all of your different careers? I think it's probably been in all of my different careers, but in comedy specifically, I'd, I've, not, I've not said... To, that's a lie. The only thing I've told Christian, my agent, that I want to do with my career is two things. I want to be on Have I Got News For You, hosting it. Yeah. And I want to be on Strictly. <laughs> Because I used to. Oh, you're a Bollywood dancer. I used to be a Bollywood choreographer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to showcase that. But those, but those are just vanity things. It's not, you know, this is my target. So I've kind of just, yeah, I have kind of just thrown myself into things and seen where the chips have landed. Because in a way, making mistakes is the best way to learn. And the three Edinburgh shows I've done, I've made so many mistakes. I know I've made those mistakes. And I will learn from them and get better. And I think kind of running for it now is going to make me a better comedian in 15 years time. I think, I hope anyway. Rather than some people like the alternative strategy, and you mentioned Mickey Flanagan, he, I don't think it was necessarily a strategy on his part, but one of the things you can do is not go to Edinburgh and arrive yeah. for a long time whilst you get better. Let's not say in secret, yeah. but let's just say out of a particular gaze. Yeah you get better and better and better and then you hold off and hold off and then bang, bang. and explode. Yeah. Whereas you're more, and I think I am as well, just get just get out there and work. Which isn't to suggest yeah. I regret breaking up Mickey now. He's yeah. worked harder than anyone for years. <laughs> but uh, but you see what I mean? Like that, I think I'm more in, in aligned with that idea of like, get out, do the work, keep doing the work, make the mistakes, keep yeah. going, rather than trying to sort of strategize and kind of yeah. gamify it by holding back and... 
doing things at the right. And it's, it's a bit reflective of how I write my material as well, which is I, I have the idea and I go on stage and just talk. I don't write anything out. Love it. So I go out on stage and just see where my brain takes me because I genuinely believe that my, you know, everybody's brain, we have a natural intonation in the way we speak and we think about ideas. And when you write about them, they come out very differently to me. So I like going on stage. Oh, you mean they come out written in a sort of written way as opposed to a sort of a flowing conversational way. And so as I'm flowing in the conversation on stage, I then know this is where I feel most comfortable taking this particular idea. So that's how I like writing, for want of a better phrase. You know, my Edinburgh shows, none of them are written down. Hours of, you know, these are one hour material. They're not written down. I've got the ideas, I've got the kernels. And throughout Edinburgh, they end up becoming the final version of the show. Now, I'm going to refer to something you told me in a text and tell me if you don't want me to leave this in. Yeah. But you said you sent me those two shows. I've listened to the audio of both. Yeah. I said, which one? I said, I might not have time to listen to both. Which one are you most proud of? And you said, yeah. well, neither of them. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that's the sort of thing one should say in kind of one's marketing. Yeah. But it does strike me that that is in tune with what you said about like, Oh, they're you know they're full of mistakes. It's 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 try to run before you can walk, yeah. and you'll end up walking faster. Is that yeah? Wh- how of, do you feel about those shows? Now? So those shows. Uh, is, well, first thing is, is that true that you're not proud of them? Or were you being flippant or deferent in a conversational uh, way? It yeah, it's it's ninety percent true. Okay, the ten percent of it that's untrue is that I'm proud that I wrote an hour's worth of material and did it. I and in five years I've done three one-hour shows. People have come, they've paid money, they've watched it. On the whole, people have said they enjoyed it. I'm proud of that fact. The 90% where I say I'm not proud of either is I know this is, right now this is the best I can produce, but also I know that had I listened to, say, the tactics of Josh Widdicombe on this podcast, Jason Manford, James Acaster on the on this very podcast, and applied their learnings to that I was very drawn to, those shows would have been significantly better. So there's a part of me which says to myself, you could have done this. I know I didn't, but for now, they're fine. I know that when I look back on them, I'm like, they could have been a lot better. But I'm glad I got them out there. I'm glad I'm earning the stripes and getting the bullets and just, you know getting the experience of being on stage trying to do this thing because it's such a privilege for me to be doing stand-up like you know my my dad came here when he was 15 and he had all these jobs he got stabbed by the national front twice he trying to feed his family and here i am flouncing about on stage telling jokes for a living it's actually mind-boggling so for now i'm just happy to be out there just trying it the content of the Edinburgh shows I've heard, you sent me Infidelity, mm-hmm. uh, which I've tried to pronounce to highlight yeah. the pun, <laughs> and, um, uh, and Profit Like It's Hot, yeah. which I don't need to pronounce in yeah. such a way to highlight the pun. Um, those shows deal with some big, chunky topics. Yeah. They deal with love. They deal with your sexual history or lack thereof and yeah. that, that, that idea. Um, they deal with your, I'm going to say apostasy, but I've never yeah. said that word out loud. You're right. right. Pronunciation. Yeah. They deal with your apostasy, which is, yeah. um, uh, it's like being, an, it's like a fallen from religion. It's, it's yeah, so you are, you're a lapsed Muslim. Yeah. Lapsed Muslim isn't a phrase that really exists, which I'm trying to gotcha. mainstream. But apostasy is someone who has was born into the faith and then uh, decides it's not for them. 
<laughs> you get the impression certainly from the stuff you talk about from what we know of the extremist elements yeah. of Islam that uh, deciding it's not for them <laughs> is not the party line on how apostasy works <laughs> um, so you talk about these big subjects and you really you really get stuck into them in one of the shows you talk about you talk at length about the five pillars of Islam and you really get like there are elements in that show where I was sort of thinking oh we we could be laughing more if we weren't listening as hard because yeah. actually you're covering loads of ground and I feel quite schooled in, in yeah, a quite yeah. exciting way. And you also deal with the death of your mother, yeah, which I know from knowing you personally hit you very hard, yeah, of course, yeah. And I wonder whether you, the approach of I'm just going to get out there and tear through all this stuff that I'm thinking about, whether you might find later did you ever give any thought to the idea that you might find later you'd used up certain big subjects mm -hmm. before you were in a position to do your crowning glory high five everyone version of that show like 15 years into your yeah. career uh i think the answer is no in the sense that i know i can revisit those topics there is there is nowhere there is no guidebook or anything that says i cannot revisit those topics I, I absolutely agree with you that in 10, 15 years' time, hopefully I'll be um, better prepared and better equipped to be able to talk about those big topics. But at the moment, this is the stuff that matters to me. This is the stuff that I wanted to talk about. Uh, and it may not be the best version of it right now, um, but at some point it will be. And I will go back to those things and I will talk about them better. Already, you know, I talk about my mum's death you know, a year later from the show in a much better way now than I did a year ago. And so when I eventually go back to it, because you know, people's memories are short. They're not, you know, and, and my fans and whoever is coming to watch me, they might appreciate the fact that I've tried to revisit this stuff. And I can acknowledge it that, you know, I'm older now. I may have children at that point. It gives me a different perspective on my mum's death. There are numerous things about my life that are going to change that will influence the way I talk about those things. Um, my apostasy may seem constant, but nevertheless, you know, as m my dad reaches an age where there may come a time where I lose him as well, uh, if I have children and they get exposed to religion, whatever it might be, there will be influences that influence the way I talk about this stuff again. So at some point, I definitely will. Um, so I don't think it rules that out at all. That's a very mentally healthy way to think about it. I think sometimes with this podcast, I like my trick that I do is I reveal the most craven thoughts I have about my own career and output and creativity. And I kind of go, you too. Yeah. And it's satisfying when people go, God, me too. Yeah. And it's satisfying in a different way when people go, no. Yeah. <laughs> I remember Stephen Grant, I asked Stephen Grant years ago, do you ever think you'll run out of material? And he was just yeah. like, no, and yeah. he proved to me with maths. He was like, "Here's why you can. No one could ever possibly run out." Yeah, exactly. I don't think you can ever run out of material. It's just, and your perspective is going to change. The perspective I have now, uh, as some, you know, in the last five years, trying this comedy thing, versus the perspective I'll have hopefully in ten years' time, where I'm much more experienced and more respected and have more fans. It's going to be so different. So the way I view the world is going to be different. Um, and that's the beauty of comedy as an art form is it can grow with you uh, and you can grow with it, you know. Um, like right now at the moment, I'm grappling with social media, right? You know, the success of Mo Gilligan has been absolutely amazing to see. 
you know, I remember speaking to Mo a couple of years before it all blew up for him, where he was going to go and do the AAA showcase in Edinburgh. He was like, I've got the money. Now, I've got the money to go and do this. And then suddenly it just blew up for him. He's got his show and all this stuff. And I'm learning that um, social media is one way of, another way of diversifying your portfolio. Now, I don't think I'm really very good at it, but my Mock the Week clip got two and a half million views, uh, which a lot of Mock the Week clips don't. Mm. And now I'm thinking, well, how can I leverage this? Mm. Uh, and so my perspective now, I'm now thinking about the material I write and how it appeals to an audience that are across the world. And it sounds grandiose, but actually I am serving those people because they're going to see that stuff. And so ultimately, those are the people I'm doing it for. They're, gonna, they're the ones who are going to buy tickets to come and see me if I go to Borneo, as one of the fans wrote to me from. I was like, you listen to this stuff? Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I'm growing with it, I think. So is there a way, just to stay on that for a moment, is there a way to work out, like I'm not, I'm not actually familiar with that clip, um, is there a way, is there a particular way that you can analyse the subject matter and go, do you have a notion of why it got so many millions of hits? And can you open the hood and tinker with it and kind of retrospectively work out what it was and write towards that? I think uh, that particular clip was where I talk about having a Pakistani dad and a Bangladeshi mum and the racism that exists within those two communities towards each other. And my parents were quite racist to each other, actually, okay. while I was growing up. And I think... I, I can suddenly see how it got two million hits. Yeah, <laughs> right. And that, I think that's what it is, is all over the world, that, that bit of material happened to hit this reality of parents being different to one another, but also our nationalities and the conversations we have about race in England are quite basic compared to the conversations about race in other countries. Mm-hmm. You know, two brown people, my dad brown, my mum brown, they're both Muslim, but they're divided by these arbitrary lines, which has led to this crazy bit of racism and the whole war that happened in 1971. But all over the world, there are pockets like this, where they're like, this happens to me too. My dad's Indonesian, my mum's Malaysian. And they do this stuff and they start sharing that story. And I think what's nice, what I've learned from that clip and have gleaned from it is that comedy audiences all over the world, yes, they want something relatable, but they want something that they can laugh at and share with one another and be like, hey, we've got the same experience. And here is someone who is just relaying that experience. Um, so that's been great for me. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Do you predict any things to be wary of when kind of, like there's, there's one, there's two schools, aren't there? There's, there's numerous ways of dividing a creative process you the artist writes what they want and the world falls in line with it or not and the artist writes what they think the audience wants like at the polls you know at the, at the either end of the spectrum okay. are there any dangers do you think with going oh this got a reaction and so i'll pursue that are there any ways you could kind of wrong foot yourself in going after a specific thing? this is very interesting uh, because Thank so, you, I am clever. <laughs> You're very clever. So I'm not going to Edinburgh in 2020. I'm not going to the Fringe. I'm taking a break. But one thing I've learned is that I, with my last three shows, I try to write for Edinburgh. I try to write to serve what I thought was an audience in Edinburgh that this is what they wanted to hear. And over time, I've come to realise that not that there are 12 months in the year, but what I mean by that is that the 11 months of the year, I go around the country making people laugh and they enjoy my company. 
one month of the year I'm there thinking I'm not funny. I'm not funny. Uh, I'm not interesting. Uh, I'm not serving this particular audience. And then I feel quite shit about myself, to be honest. That clip has made me realise that really all that matters is I put out whatever my thing is and whoever likes it will find it. And they'll come and they'll enjoy it. And that those audiences can change over time, just as I will change. The things I talk about will change and the audience will say, actually, it's not for me anymore. This new audience is for you. Okay. And so it's taken me four years of my five years of being a comedian to get to a position where I'm like, actually, I just want to put out what I want to put out. And whoever comes with me on that journey comes. Because with Edinburgh, I've had criticisms for talking about race too much, not talking about race enough. I've had criticisms for sounding too good, so I can't enjoy his comedy, which is... Sounding too good? Yeah, but, but one of the reviews I got was, uh, he's too well-spoken. Ah, sure, okay, yeah. And, and you're kind of like, well, you've not said that about Ivo Graham or Tom Horton or even are here for that, for example. Sure. Why does the way I speak matter? Mm-hmm. Into, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to be funny. And Edinburgh just becomes this one place where... I think a lot of new comedians, myself included, it becomes the be all and end all of defining how good you are as a comedian. And I, the mis- one of the mistakes I alluded to earlier is that I think the mistake I made was I was trying too hard to serve Edinburgh. I love the Edinburgh Festival, as this podcast has spent eight years documenting. Yeah. But I, I absolutely love it. But there could not be anything more representative of the old model. Is that right? Do you yeah. know what I mean? If you, like, Edinburgh is the opposite yeah. of shooting a thing and putting it online and getting it seen and working out who responds to it. It's the yeah. opposite of that. It's, yeah, like yeah. A, it's like a distillate of the old model. You put on a show in a room and invite people yeah. at the same time as everyone else does that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is strange. And we know, don't we, that people can go to Edinburgh and, in inverted commas, win. They can win yeah. that year. And it doesn't necessarily mm. lead to yeah. 1% of what can be achieved in a totally different way. Yeah, I'm not yeah, saying yeah. it doesn't have its place, but yeah. I think you're absolutely right to not to aim for success there as if that will lead to anything besides more success there. Yeah. And that's something that I've got to very recently, which is actually I just need to put out the content and thoughts that I want to put out. And social media gives me a great opportunity to, to leverage that. I don't, I'm not very good at it at the moment, but luckily in the five years I've been doing it, things have gone in the right kind of direction and more and more people know who I am and they're coming to my shows. And I just want to keep growing that audience. Uh, and it may not be in Edinburgh. Very smart move that your Twitter handle is Michael Packentire. Thank you very much. I don't much. know how to spell it, but I imagine it's easy to find. <laughs> it's certainly memorable. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I've heard compliments on that from other comedians who may have, I may not have worked with, but they know me from that handle. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's handy. So this is Ishan. I'm I'm having a wonderful time talking to him. Uh, it's going to continue to get grittier and grittier uh, as we go along. So one more content warning. We are going to briefly touch on discussions of a suicide attempt later on. Sorry if that darkens it for everyone else, but I would much rather everyone going into this knows exactly what they're going to get, particularly with that specific topic, because I, I do think triggering is a real thing like it's a real actual medical thing for all that that term gets bandied around in um, discussions of the term snowflake and uh, the uh, the uh, 
God, all the ramifications of that. Nonetheless, triggering is an actual psychological thing. So if you are concerned uh, about discussions of suicide, then uh, best leave this one for now and uh, access it in some other fashion. So more to come soon. I've mentioned Cambridge already and I've mentioned all of the great stuff in the Insiders Club, uh, comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, not just extras from this episode, but extras from every episode that has extras. And this includes episodes from like six years ago where I've said, hey, join the mailing list for the extras. You can no longer do that. So apologies to the one or two people who've been trying, who've been listening uh, archivally. Uh, All of the extras now are on the Insiders Club. And you can also join uh, the Slack workspace and help me over the next few weeks design something that may or may not one day be the much-suggested ComCom conference. Um, If you are a member of the Insiders Club, get along to the Slack workspace. We are going to continue to have a discussion about uh, that, what it might be, and some of my crazy notions for it. So uh, if you'd like to be part of a sort of... uh, uh, what's the word? A think tank. There we go. It's the think tank. Uh, then you can. Uh, that that's one of the things available to you as a member of the Insiders Club. Uh, I, I mentioned Cambridge comedianscomedian dot com slash tour uh, for your tickets for that. Probably by the time you heard this, it's already happened and it was glorious. And I was carried shoulder high around the city. Let's assume that's a bare minimum result. Oh, and before I forget, you can see Ishan at the Soho Theatre on the 7th to the 11th of April, Tuesday the 7th to Saturday the 11th of April 2020s on at 9.15pm. Go to SohoTheatre.com and if you want to, go to SohoTheatre.com slash shows slash Ishan hyphen Akbar hyphen Infidel hyphen ITY. Probably another slash, but basically SohoTheatre.com, 7th to the 11th of April. That's all of that. Uh, Let's get back into this, okay? Onward, not just (laughs) a content warning and also... Not exactly a smugness warning. I don't think I came across as smug. But as I said, I love Ishan. And I think I uh, went more into detail with some unsolicited advice about his act than I ordinarily would. All right, that said, I'll say no more about it. Here we go. I see myself as an extension of the audience on stage. Okay. Do you see what I mean? Yes. I was someone who would watch comedy... Like, oh, that's funny. Oh, maybe it could be this. <laughs> and now I'm on stage with them going, guys, this is the stuff that I'm thinking about. I was just there a second ago. Yeah, sure. You know? So you're effectively sitting in the audience with them and going like, what would we want to see? I'd like to see a joke about this. I think that'd be funny. Yeah. And you? Yeah, a, a, little, a little bit. But uh, it's still, the starting point is still, this is, what, this is how I view the world. Yes. And this is what I want to work on. I'm talking about paedophiles and how, you know, one of my gags is about um, how parents get nervous when I play with their children because their children are having a lovely time. I get on with the kids. I know how to get on their level. And I feel the need to reassure them by saying, look, I understand you're nervous about your baby, but I'm of Pakistani descent, so the kind of pedophilia we do is northern white working-class teenage girls. So your baby's absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> that came from workshopping it. Sure. Because someone, some, someone said to me, oh, mate, I thought you were going to go down the Rotherham route. And I was like, I wasn't, but I am now. Yeah, okay, sure. You know? Sure. Okay. So in terms of your, like, you seem to have a very robust uh, um, confidence in your way of doing things. And like you say, if it comes from the naivety thing. So how does that sit with the idea that you are on stage in the first place? Do you buy into any idea of, like, the comedian being there because of some great tragedy or because of some unfilled hole in their life? 
that then makes the comic that makes someone become a comic and kind of seek the approval of strangers over the fellowship of their friends in the evening? Uh, not particularly. Um, I, I, I think comedians are we're a very precious bunch. And I think a lot of comedians have... Uh, I have this argument with my girlfriend a lot, and I've done a few Twitter polls about this. I don't think comedians are nearly as important as they think they are. <laughs> and I Agreed. Agree. And I also don't think comedians are nearly as influential as they think they are. Okay. I think comedy is one of those very interesting industries where there's a lot of what I like to call performative moralism. Okay. And it is comes from a place of, I've got the microphone, I'm going to, I'm, you know, I'm the orator here and I'm going to talk to you about whatever. I'm not sold on that because I have been in environments where there are people whose words really do matter. The CEO of a bank, if he says this economy is going to crash, that has huge implications for the rest of the country. If the CEO of a local authority says we don't have enough money to uh, look after our, our old people in the borough, that has huge implications for those people. If I go on stage and say something which is entirely intended as a joke, or I want to take a funny look at something, it doesn't matter. In the context of that room, it doesn't matter. In the context of Twitter, it doesn't matter. I don't want people to respect or value my opinion. I'm a clown. I'm a professional clown. I'm not here. If I want to share my perspective on the world and I want to change people's opinions, I'd write a book. I'd be a politician. I'd do those things. I'm not here to do those things. I'm here to try and make you laugh. And so when I go on stage, I'm not going on stage being like, hey, you need to listen to what I think about this. I'm just there like, I want to make you laugh. Lee Hurst audiences, you stopped clapping before I got on stage. Now you're leaving laughing, taking pictures with me. Uh, in Leicester, if you're a hijab-wearing 60-year-old and you see me take the Quran on stage and initially you're worried and by the end you stroke your hat, you know, hand on my head and say, son, you're doing such a great job representing Islam this way. That is great a great outcome. But I don't, I'm not bought into this idea of comedians being something special. I recognise that audiences will see and be like, oh, that's magic. He's done a joke or the MC, you know, he asked, what do you do? And the MC said something funny about it. I understand that. But I'm not sold on the idea of me being or comedians being something that massively special. We're just a privilege and we get to make you laugh. I think that's great. Do you think that... Um that culture, that cultural artefacts, like you said, if you wanted to change the world, you write a book. Yeah. Do you think that writing a book is more culturally meaningful or impactful than, you know, telling a joke than doing a show? And, and why? Um, like, does, does, do any cultural artefacts have changed the world value? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, books, plays... Uh, theatre and why would you say a play is more important than a comedy performance in terms of its cultural yeah, I wouldn't say it's more important Uh, to me it has more cultural cachet uh, more so than uh, a joke Um, only because with with plays and those other performative art forms to me the creator of that art form 
is trying to uh, tell a story that to me seems much more real and connected to what the intent of a joke is. Because a joke at its core is there with the intention of trying to make you laugh. The emotions that all other cultural artifacts are trying to get, depending on what they're writing about, is not with the intent of trying to make you laugh. Now, a, a happy outcome of making you laugh is I might make you think about something a bit differently, just a tiny bit. But at its core, I'm not providing you with all the information you need to make a step change in your ideology or thinking. Whereas with a a play, perhaps, or with a theatre piece or whatever, you define the parameters and there is a certain uh, context within which you're speaking that particular truth, whatever it may be, which I don't think a joke necessarily does or should do. Jokes often affect that position. Like, I, I think what you I don't disagree with what you're saying, but I think it's quite unusual within comedy to hear someone say, none of this matters. Because often the people who say none of it matters are kind of daft, absurd, one-liner, yeah. or kind of observational stuff. Whereas you're talking about, if not political things, you're certainly talking about religious yeah. things. You, talk, you know, when you talk about uh, the, when you talk about your faith and your lack of faith, your fall from faith, mm. it is charged with a sort of frisson of risk, yeah. you know, and of importance. It's very rare. Do you, do you think it's rare to hear a comic go, I'm doing political material, but I'm also aware that nothing I say matters. Yeah, I think it is rare. I think because over because the, most comics like to think that we're important. Yeah, yeah. Because I think over the last few years, there seems to be this. Maybe it's to do with the rise of social media. It's given everyone an opinion and a voice. Fine, great. Uh, Assholes are now on social media. Great. But I find honest. I find it baffling when I read a comedian's perspective in a newspaper about the political machinations of this country, because it's an opinion and that opinion should not be law. And over the last few years, the establishment has become comedy. Comedy went from what I know of it and what I saw of it from the Rick Mayle days, uh, the Ben Elton days, they, these were anti-establishment people uh, who were putting a lens on what the world was being like, isn't this crazy? Margaret Thatcher's this, blah, blah, blah. Whereas now, to me, it feels like I can't discern between who is who are the gatekeepers in comedy and who are the gatekeepers of society. They're one and the same thing. And suddenly you're like, well, where does comedy fit in this? Because I'm going to assume that you think racism, sexism, misogyny is bad until you prove otherwise. Mm -hmm. But now there seems to be this whole world where you go on stage and you say, guys, I just want you to know, I think racism is awful, sexism is bad, applause break, done. And I find that very difficult as someone who has worked in industries outside of... I didn't read any comedian's opinion about the financial markets to make my decisions. <laughs> sure. When I was making policy decisions on behalf of children's social care, on behalf of what we do with roads adult social care, I wasn't looking to see what a comedian thinks about this. I might read it to be entertained in mm -hmm. an opinion piece, but I'm not going to change my opinion based on what they're saying. And you don't think it has any purpose as a sort of cultural barometer, that the sorts of things people are saying and the sorts of things people are laughing at might 
kind of take the temperature. I know that's not what a barometer does, um, but you know, but it, but it, it might be. Thermometer. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but both, you know, either yeah. mixing yeah. metaphors yeah. here. That it, that the sorts of things that people are talking about in comedy clubs and on TV, that they somehow represent what the people in inverted commas are thinking and talking about. Brexit told us that's exactly what doesn't happen. Brexit told us that that is not what happens. What we talked about in comedy clubs is not what people were talking about in villages across England. In the comedy clubs, we pat ourselves on the back for having the right kind of opinion, saying the right kind of thing, being on side with everybody. But when you go to the villages in England, when they go to the polling booths, they have a completely different opinion. Isn't that a contradiction, though, that you're saying people come out on stage to entertain people and say... You know, I I am a, I am a, of a particular political persuasion, and I th- I thought your point was that everyone in the audience already is as well. And then what we discovered is actually yeah that people in the audience wildly disagree with things. So it isn't the norm. no no no. So so what I'm saying is so comedy audiences on the whole, I think we're serving the same people everywhere almost. You know this this Edinburgh Soho theatre. Um, uh, and, and Lee Hurst's audience as well. Yeah, but Lee Hurst's audiences aren't going to Edinburgh. That's exactly my point. Yeah. So we're saying the same thing, right? I'm not sure that we are. <laughs> you t- Tell me again. You're saying okay. Edinburgh, London. It sounds like you're about to say this is kind of a liberal bubble. Yeah, there's a bubble here. Yeah. Um, and almost all comedians I seem to come across seem to fit within that bubble. Yeah. We say the jokes we say, and I'm including myself in that mm-hmm. particular thing. And some comedians think that they're going to influence what people are thinking. But the audience is there serving. It's preaching to the converted. This idea hasn't come out before. That's not going to change anyone's opinion, and nor should it. Because the people who aren't watching the likes of me or whoever else don't view the world in the same way. And we're not going to influence what they think. Does that make sense? Well, it does. I don't know that I agree with you because I think culture is this huge wave to which all cultural artefacts contribute and they reflect what's going on. Mm. And I suppose if you're saying that, like, you can do gigs in London and in Soho and you can do, I've certainly done my share of liberal bubble type gigs, Mm. but I've also done shows in places where you know, I've done I've done shows in places where someone mentions UKIP and uh, someone boos, and then loads of people boo the person that boos. Do you know what I mean? That like yeah, they're yeah, mixed yeah. mixed political, you know, non bubble yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. And I think in those circumstances, what a comedian says on stage, if you can put something well or put something in a different perspective, that can change people's minds, can't it? Did you, as a younger person listening to comedy, have part of your personality formed by the social politics of the people you were listening to, those anti-establishment people, say? But those anti-establishment people were there to make me laugh. I didn't... I didn't... Because Rick Mayle did something funny that made me laugh that, you know, was a lens into how stupid XYZ might be. Okay. I suddenly didn't change my behaviour. I was like, oh, that's funny. No, you didn't suddenly change your behaviour, but do you not... You think, think it influences? It, do you not think it influences that if you were... Like, I am a child of the 80s. I was born in the late 70s. Yeah. So when the alternative comedy thing was happening, you know, the comic strip presents and those guys and later the young ones in Bottom and what have you, um, I feel like that was very left-oriented and that has informed my politics and has informed... Yeah. 
Fine, I understand that, because there was a real polarisation in politics at that point. Okay. Right? There was a real polarisation in politics. Now, there is a polarisation, but the advent of social media and where we get our information from, because back then information was restricted. You had a few news channels or whatever else, uh, newspapers, and you knew that, uh, for example, in, in the case of the UK, it's a very conservative government, Thatcher, money, financial liberalisation, fine, all that's happening. There was a very clear demarcation for what comics were trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Now, the space that comics occupy and the establishment occupy, the lines are blurred. And so for me, as a comic, I want to make people laugh, but I've fallen into this industry which I don't think is that different from the very thing the, uh, some of the gatekeepers of the industry try to criticise. And what I mean by this is as follows. I've worked in banking where most of the top people were from Oxbridge. Mm-hmm. I've worked in government where most of the top people were from Oxbridge. I work in comedy where most of the top people are from Oxbridge. All those industries have people who are predominantly white across the at the top mm-hmm. and predominantly male. Mm-hmm. All three have exactly the same characteristics so far. It's only in comedy, I would say, as a brown, partially disabled because of my deafness. <laughs> I'm just I'm laughing. I'm just laughing to reflect the twinkle in your eye when you said that. <laughs> Brown, let's let's say disabled. Let's say disabled. <laughs> partially disabled brown guy. It's only in comedy that I've had to grapple most with my identity and who I am more than in any other industry. That to me is mind-boggling because Comedy was supposed to be the place where uh, I am who I am. Yeah. And you express that, and that's it. I have, had, I have been very lucky with my career so far. Things have gone brilliantly. But it's the only industry where I have felt like an outsider from within it. Having served in the highest echelons, or close to, in two very, very difficult industries in terms of banking and government. And that saddened me, and saddens me even now, because I think to myself, well, hold on a minute, I'm here to try and make people laugh, but actually there are comedians telling me you're here to give your opinions and your opinions should be the same as ours. There's the wider industry who's saying, oh, by the way, when you come in for this audition, can you please make sure you're more like the other Asian guy that we like? Okay. The only place I get solace, really, is when I'm on stage and the audience are laughing at my jokes. They don't care about the machinations of all this stuff. All they care about in Glasgow is, are you funny? If you're funny, we're fine. Yeah, okay. All the big political points you're making doesn't matter. So, oh God, there's lots to talk about there. So why do you think that that is the case? Why has that become the case? That is, is it simply that compared to government and policy making and industry private private sector mm. um compared to those things comedy is wildly unregulated and it's just down it's almost like comedy just exists on its own without anyone really there's no oversight so mm. everyone just does what they can get away with mm. times 40 years and here we are 
I think that's part of it, but I, th- yeah, I think that's part of it. Uh, uh, people would argue that banking was left unregulated, which is why we have financial <laughs> crisis and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think it's it's more to do with, you know, maybe Michael Gove is slightly to blame for this, but um, this idea that we don't value experts anymore, right? We don't value the people who have made it their life's work to to research something, to study something, to really understand, get under the skin of some big, big topics. Now, because I'm a comedian and I have, I elected to become an observer of the world around me and the observer of myself, my opinion matters more than somebody who might have been studying this for a long time, simply because I have the tools to be able to say something funny about it. But actually, I'm not saying anything funny. All I'm saying is, hey, isn't Donald Trump stupid? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can see that. Mm-hmm. But tell me something funny about that. That's not funny. Uh, God, Harvey Weinstein's a creep. Yeah. What, what's funny? And so for me, it's it's got to that point where comedy has become, and I find it very difficult as I try and grow as a comedian, where I want to place myself, comedy has become a mouthpiece for the privileged. And it never used to be. Mm-hmm. that's not what I saw growing up. Comedy was not supposed to be the mouthpiece for the privileged. Comedy was supposed to be the mouthpiece for the underprivileged. Comedy was supposed to be the place where we gained solace from the crap that was going on around the world. And I don't think it does that anymore. Because it's a nakedly capitalist, career-oriented, liberal echo chamber. Basically. You articulated it much better than I did. So do you consider yourself the underprivileged needing a voice or the privileged enjoying a voice? Very good question. I grapple with this a lot. I'm a privately educated former banker. On the pa- on paper, that's privileged as shit. Um, I, weirdly, the, where I feel underprivileged is I just want to be a comedian that makes people laugh. I don't want to have an opinion about big things. You know, as... I mean, to be fair, you have positioned yourself as someone with an opinion about big things through those three Edinburgh shows. Well, it, it, do you think? But is it an opinion, or is that, am I just relaying my experiences? Sure, but it if you so relay happens. your experiences, then when a producer needs someone who'll talk about Islam, yeah, yeah. You, you've put a flag up and said, "I'll talk about this." Yeah, they don't pick me though. No, no, they don't pick me. I mean, because it's dangerous. Oh, I'm a dangerous comedian, guys. That's what just- oh, yeah, I mean, you're pretty fast and loose with, uh, <laughs> <laughs> with, the, the, with jokes about the threat of ISIS attacking your gig as a sort of a yeah. punitive measure. Yeah. Go on, sorry, I interrupted you. Um, I can't remember what I was saying. It was an answer to a, a good and challenging question. But it was a very good challenge. <laughs> so uh, do you, how privileged do you oh. consider yourself? I am... Um, okay, where I feel underprivileged is there's a couple of places I think and again I don't want this to become privileged porn because that happens a lot and I hate that too where people fetishize their poverty or fetishize the class mm-hmm. um fetishize a characteristic to say oh I happen to be Muslim I happen to be brown I happen to be black and therefore my whole worldview has to be entirely based on that one thing we are more than those one thing um I think where my privilege comes from is I just I want to be funny and I want to reach as, as many people. <laughs> you say, and I'm not funny. Yeah. It's my lack of privilege. Yeah. 
as a brown Muslim guy, I'm often told by those communities that I should represent them. Mm-hmm. And I can't. I, I don't know what that means. But I don't know who I'm supposed to be representing. And this comes up a lot. Um, I, my, I had quite a middle-class upbringing, but my parents, you know, my dad was a minicab driver before he became a paramedic. I lived in rented accommodation for the best part of 15 years before I bought a house when I was 18. I bought a house when I was 18. Yeah, that right. sounds That's like a privilege. Shift, right? Yeah. yeah, sounds like privilege, but it wasn't for, you know, it was bloody hard work. And I sacrificed my whole 20s to, you know, paying a mortgage and trying to keep my family stable. Um, it's interesting where on the spectrum that is, because I think to hear a privately educated voice say, I bought a house when I was 18, but come on, guys, it was bloody hard work. Yeah. Isn't going to sound like it isn't. underprivileged. It isn't, but I, I got to the private school on, on a scholarship. I wasn't paying fees. Oh, and here's a tip I heard. Uh, when you're trying to, take your, trying to get your kids into a school, always ask for a scholarship. There's yeah. loads sloshing around. Yeah, I always thought it was a magic thing that descended out of heaven, but yeah. actually they really want to... Yeah. Give people scholarships. Yeah. So tip to the listener, yeah. if you've got kids, always ask for a scholarship. Yeah. Never pay full price it's, on a car. Exactly. Le- sorry, always, let me continue. Always, always <laughs> continue. But, you know, during my time at school, my dad was a minicab driver. Yeah. That was his primary job. My mum didn't work. I was the poorest kid in the school. I, I didn't choose the school I went to. My parents sent me there in the hope that my life chances would improve. How did that feel to be the poorest kid in a private school? I mean... did it Was it noticeable? Did it feel like an element yeah, of school? Yeah, it was noticeable. I mean... I didn't go on any school trips because we didn't have the money. And people would, I'd be the butt of very many jokes. Um, I, you know, I'd go out of school and my dad would come to pick me up and there'd be Range Rover, Lexus, Mercedes. My dad's Honda Accord, 10 years old, banged up with the minicab aerial sticking out of the back of it. And people would be like, oh, my dad, oh my God, your dad's a minicab driver. That's awful, you know? I've always been this outsider in these privileged places. Uh, Comedy sometimes feels like that too. I feel like an outsider, even though for all intents and purposes, I'm really not, you know, I'm kind of a middle-class guy who had done three Edinburgh shows, paid for them himself. You're on telly. You're succeeding as a comic. Yeah, I'm succeeding as a comic. But I don't always feel like I belong. Because, I don't know, it's so... So is that a root of frustration for you, that part of you coming into comedy was to feel like you belonged, finally, having been an outsider in so many other things? Yeah. And now you are frustrated. I'm, I'm phrasing this as a statement, yeah. but I mean yeah. it as a question. Now you're frustrated that the... Um, <laughs> don't say Mecca. The... <laughs> 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 that the you know you you have brought yourself to a community that is supposed to champion outsiders and it isn't doing that to to the extent you wanted it to. Uh, kind of a little bit, uh, a little bit, and I think the common thread is private school establishment, banking establishment, government establishment. Comedy wasn't supposed to be that. Do you think it's fair to say that your route in comedy, getting picked up by a big agent quite early on and ending up doing TV shows? quite fairly early on, you have been drawn somehow towards an establishment version of the circuit as opposed to, I feel like there are numerous versions of the circuit and there is an outsider's version of the circuit which welcomes all comers but that you don't make as much money and you don't do mainstream gigs and you don't have a big agent and you do 
kind of projects that are creative and fulfill you artistically and you don't pay the mortgage yeah. through comedy. Do you feel like you've chosen a version of the circuit? That's a, v- a very good question. Just like as happened with how comedy chose me, I kind of feel like that stuff that I feel very lucky and very blessed to be doing has also kind of chosen me. You know, when when Mock the Week happened for me, I had no idea it was on the radar. My agent called me at the beginning of Edinburgh and said, you're doing Mock the Week after you come back. That's a great... Did that, then my, my instinct there is, oh, that must be an easy Edinburgh. Because mental health-wise, yeah. you're buzzing along thinking, doesn't matter what happens here, I'm doing Mock when I get back. Well, a little bit. Yeah? A little bit. And at that point, I actually focused a lot more on the show. I was like, I'm going to develop the show a bit better. Handy. Notes to agents. Trick your acts into focusing on the show better (laughs) (laughs) by by making up (laughs) a post-Edinburgh TV talk. And also, you know, one of the mistakes I was talking about earlier, one of the mistakes I made in Edinburgh is, because I kept writing for Edinburgh, it's only now that I've learned, actually, I should be writing the show to tour it. That's what I should be using Edinburgh for. I've only just learned that now. I'm five years in. I smacked myself in the head being like, oh, stupid. Um, but to go back to your point about that outside the circuit, I love, let's call it the, the club circuit. I love playing comedy clubs. It feels like comedy to me. TV, and the bits of TV I've been very lucky to do, doesn't feel like comedy to me. It feels very performative, and it feels like a version of myself that serves that particular audience but I feel my most alive when I'm in a room and there's people with beers in their hands and there's a, it's a bit rowdy and people are laughing at jokes or not laughing that feels like comedy to me all this other stuff I don't really see as comedy I don't think we see the best of our comedians on panel shows uh, and things like that because being, being banterous with your mates. Not a word. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> um, being ban- you know, having banter and doing all that stuff, that's, that's one thing. But being a panel show, quote-unquote, comedian, being a stand-up comedian is two different things uh, to me. Uh, being an Edinburgh comedian is, again, very different to that. Um, is comedy then for you a mercenary pursuit? You want to enjoy yourself and make money, and that's it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I primarily want to enjoy myself. Life is very fleeting. You know, there is no coincidence that it was after my mum passed away so suddenly that I quit having these stable jobs and decided to become a comedian. I kind of went crazy and joined the circus. Right, that thing. I want to enjoy myself while I'm here. And part of me enjoying myself is me talking about the things that I find funny. And the things I find funny, unfortunately the way my brain works, is the stuff that people think is quite tense. Religion, it may be at the moment. But all these big topics, people get so wound up about it. And I'm just there going, there's some funny shit here we need to talk about. (laughs) You're upset about this. I need to talk about it. It's hilarious. Why are you getting upset? Because life is stupid. It's fleeting. It just goes in a moment. Um, and the the make money thing is look, I I've done okay for money, but 
things aren't always easy and I've got debts to pay and, you know, there's a lot of, in terms of how I was raised, a lot intertwined with what I can do for my dad and whether I can build him a conservatory or not, uh, whether my brother is stable and happy or not. I feel a lot of that comes from me feeling like I'm making enough money to make those things happen. Now, a therapist would say to me, it's not my responsibility. Fine, Mm -hmm. I understand that. But a big part of, when you have a house at the age of 18 that your family live in, and Your family lived in it. I yeah. haven't picked up on that from yeah, your yeah. story. Okay. Yeah. So we lived in rented accommodation. And when I was able to buy this house, I bought the house and I moved my mum in, my dad in, and my brother in. You have that level of responsibility that sticks with you. You know, you, you say, I've got, I can't fuck it up. Where is your brother in all this? He's younger than you, isn't he? Yeah, I was about to say, like, where's his fucking house? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, he's 10 years younger ten, than you. 10 years younger than me. <laughs> so if I fuck it up, these three people are on the street. My dad and I working hard together to pay the bills as much as I can, as much as we can. Now at 29, I've decided to leave the stability of the jobs that I had, which touch wood, I was getting a pretty decent salary in both of those jobs. I've got to make this work. I've got to make it work so I can pay those bills to make sure that my dad certainly is okay as he nears retirement. He's worked so bloody hard all his life. He's given me the audacity of opportunity. He's given me the audacity of opportunity to do something I want to do for my own sake, which is comedy, instead of taking a stable, remaining in a stable job. I can't fuck it up for him either. Um, so I am under no qualms to say, yeah, I want to keep enjoying myself, but also earn money in a way that I feel like I'm giving back to my family. Let's talk before we wrap up about vulnerability if you were to review yourself honestly what would you say all the big things that have happened in my life i think there is some truth in that i can relate to you the events of what's occurred but do i relay the depth of my feeling perhaps perhaps not and that's perhaps something i don't do as a person which then translates to me not perhaps doing it as a comedian But I think right now, I don't know if I'm versed and versatile and talented enough as a comedian just yet to be able to observe my emotions in the way that I can observe the eventualities of what's happened. Mm. And I I have every belief that as my career progresses and I become more talented as a comedian, and actually being able to talk about my emotions in a funny way, ultimately it has to be funny, I will be able to do. Uh, So maybe that's, you know, that's part of the work in progress. I don't fully understand it just yet. Maybe I don't have the vocabulary to understand it as a comedian when, when reviewers or whoever gives me that constructive criticism, but maybe that's something that will, will happen in, in time. I think, I think that's a really good answer. And I think what I'm trying to do by asking is to sort of glean from someone as confident in their ability as you, I'm kind of looking for how should I deal with this as well? I've, I've kind of, um, my show for next year was going to be centred around a serious car accident I was in as a kid because I still am, it's affected my life. I may right. or may not have PTSD as a result of it, but certainly the kind of 
bag of general anxiety that I am, right. I suspect is rooted in this thing where I thought my family were going to die as right. a child. Right, right, right. And, and I've talked a bit about it on stage and I've managed to make jokes adjacent to it, but I don't think I've managed to make jokes out of it. And so right. I'm frustrated that even now I don't feel like, I also don't want it to be tragedy porn. Do you know what I mean? I don't want yeah, to yeah, do yeah. that kind of Edinburgh show. Yeah. But I sort of feel like I'm, I'm invested in it, but I'm constantly trying to get that thing to, to attain that thing that I'm saying to you, hey, why don't you do that? <laughs> do you know what I mean? I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Because I don't know how to do it. Yeah. And I, I feel like it's out there somewhere. So thank you for that answer. I, I think also the whole tragedy porn thing, when I talked about my mum's death, because this, this whole thing about in Edinburgh, you talk about a dead parent. Um, I was quite mindful that I didn't want it to be tragedy porn, which is, I mean, the teabag thing, the bum thing, all true. Mm-hmm. These are all true things. And they were stupid enough to be like, okay, do you know what? I can make this about the stupidity of what I did as opposed to the the sadness of what had happened with my mum. But I do think that the skill I lack as a comic, which is mining a topic for everything, is reflective in the fact that because I've chosen to talk about these big topics, I haven't mined them for everything just yet. And it's something that I'm trying to develop and get better at Um, because I don't sit down and write because I don't sit down and write. I don't have the space necessarily to pull everything out. The only way I can do is I've got 10 minutes on stage. I'll pull out as much as I can. Have you tried to sit down and write? Is that why you work like that? Because you get nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, I've tried to sit down and write and I can't do it. It, it, I, I, it just doesn't, I get too easily distracted. I, don't feel like I'm doing comedy. I feel like I'm doing a report. Um, uh, my mind just doesn't work that way as a comedian, which is odd considering I had jobs which were required <laughs> yeah, yeah, behind right. a desk yeah. and really look at data and analyse it and whatever. But when it comes to comedy, I need my... I think the difference is when it comes to numbers or words or whatever I was analysing in my previous jobs, the information was coming in and I was processing it and then putting it back out. Whereas as a comedian, I'm trying to get stuff that's within me out. So that process can't work for me in the same way. I'm obsessed with creative efficiency and I love the idea that even if it is frustrating at times, if you are, if you consider yourself unable to write and the writing can only happen on stage, you get a shitload of other stuff done during the day. Yeah, 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 you do. You do. And I've been trying to lose weight for a long time and I've not done anything about that. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't calling you out, man. Um, So when you come to do something like Frankie's show Mm. or when you do something like Mock the Week Mm. and there is a writing task to be done, Mm. do you, are you only able to write for those things by going out on stage with bits and bobs or by chopping up stuff that already exists? Or do you sit down and write towards a Mock the Week appearance? Uh, I go on stage and write stuff out on stage. Um, I'll know that this is the topic that we're going to talk about. I'll quite late in the day, like you get the you get yeah. the package, and then you're like, Christ, I've got to do fifteen open spots yeah. to try and come yeah. up with fifty jokes. But I think that's the thing. that's that's the excitement of it, and that's the audience know that too. The audience know that this is all very fresh stuff, and some of my best bits on Mock the Week happened. Not from the stuff that I pre-prepared, but the stuff that had happened in the room. And that's where I'm at my best, I think, is when I let... This is going to get quite serious now, I think. I find freedom fascinating. Mm. 
I, all my life, my parents, you know, were like, you're going to go to private school, you're going to do this. I bought a house at 18. Um, I did the jobs that I did. Freedom was never something I ever felt. The only time I've ever, ever felt free is when I'm on stage. Because no one else can determine what I can and can't say. And this is part of the reason why I get frustrated with the industry sometimes, because I feel like comedians are policing each other. Um, this kind of stuff, you're not letting people breathe. Those 10 to 20 minutes I have on stage is when I feel at my most free in any aspect of my life. Love, financially, whatever it may be. Which is why I think when I write material or perform comedy, it has to be in that space. Because that's where I feel free enough to be able to just say whatever comes to me in that time. It may not be perfect, but by God, the audience know I'm trying my best. And they're like, hey, we're willing you, we're willing for you for this to work. Because I'm on their side. I want to entertain them. So I think, and in speaking to you, it's kind of made me realise that the, the one thing I hold on to so dearly with comedy, which I've never done with any other aspect of my life, is that the freedom it affords me when I'm on stage. And that replicates in the way I write and the way I perform. Um, and I think will continue, hopefully will continue to be that way for the rest of my career. Are you happy? Um, happy with what? Happy with what? Who I am, my comedy, my career, what, what bit are you talking about? I feel like you're pretty happy with your comedy and your career. And I realise I just, you earlier on dropped that bomb about having attempted suicide a couple of years ago. So I'm asking about whether you're happy in yourself, but I'm also realising in the asking, I don't know, we don't deal with suicide so much on this show. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to be respectful to you and, and your mental health. Yeah. I... My career has been unexpected and it continues to be. If it ends tomorrow, my career, I'll be like, Do you know what? That was fun. <laughs> that was fun. I had a lovely time. I didn't expect that to happen. I feel so grateful and so privileged and so honoured to be doing comedy at all. And the, the breaks I've had and the things I've done, I'll cherish them for the rest of my life and be like, I cannot believe I did Mock the Week, you know, for example. So, yes, uh, superficially, I'm happy with that. Now that I'm in it, of course, there are things that I'm unhappy about, as I've intimated earlier, that uh, I don't like certain things about the industry. I don't like the uh, certain aspects of this industry. And that's just, I think, comes with any job. With any job you do, you're like, fuck this, you know, whatever. Who I am and where I'm at, you know, that's 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 a work in progress. And this this idea of, of freedom that I've mentioned is a very defining part of my existence. I hand on my heart can say that in almost every aspect of my life that isn't those 20 minutes on stage, I don't feel free. And sometimes that's fine. But as I get older and older, I think the truth is it gets harder and harder. 
and um, I, I crave that freedom. And I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what it means necessarily, but I do know that within myself, I feel shackled by something somewhere and I haven't got enough money yet to pay a therapist to help me work out what that is. I've resigned myself to that. So there's a happiness that comes from knowing that this is where I'm at. But am I happy that that's how I feel? Well, no, of course I'm not. Um, but comedy, and this shouldn't be the case, really, I don't think. I don't think comedy should be um, the saviour of anybody. But the fact that comedy has, in the last five years, given me so many moments where I have felt so free means it's something that I cherish as uh, an art form. It's something I cherish as a form of expression. And it's something I deeply cherish in terms of giving everybody the freedom to do and express themselves the way they wish to express themselves. So when I get annoyed about comedians policing each other, it runs deeper for me because it's like, Hold on, we're, we're all here for the same reason. We, we're, we're flying. We get to fly. We get to be on stage and we get to fly in front of all these people. We are magic. This is magic. Um, so I'm just happy that my life transpired that I found this. Because nothing else in my life has, I don't think ever will, make me feel as free as comedy has done. Thanks, man. Thanks. So that was Ishan. Thank you so much to him for coming on the show. I really enjoyed that conversation. He is already brilliant. He's going to get better and better. And I just think he's one of those people who, I mean, you can't really call someone one to watch anymore once they've started doing as well as he has. But um, I, I think one of the lovely things about my kind of peculiar position within comedy, not just doing it and getting to enjoy it all, um, but also through this podcast, getting to be a bit more hands-on, or not even hands-on, but just a bit more involved in certain aspects of of watching it all flourish and grow as a thing. I remember um, Sarah Millican always talked about the um, talk. She's still alive and she still talks. Uh, Sarah Millican always talks about comedy being the trunk of the tree, of everything else she does. Actual live stand-up is the trunk of the tree. And I... I'm thrilled that I get to God. I'm gonna. I'm hatching some sort of metaphor about tending an orchard. Abort! Abort! Get out! My point is, it's so lovely watching people be good and get better and better. So thank you to Ishad for coming on the show, and uh, I am. I'm not going to say anything else because I, I'm constantly on a knife edge of like, if I'm too effusive in praise about someone, I don't want to sound patronising. I think he's great. I think you're going to love him. So seek him out. And don't forget, you can catch Ishan at the Soho Theatre from the 7th to the 11th of April in his show Infidel hyphen Itty. He tweets at Ishan Akbar, um, but the name is Michael Packentire, so find that where you can. And his website is Ishan Akbar, two A's in Ishan. So that, oh, IshanAkbar.com, that's usually how we uh, say websites, isn't it? Mine is ComediansComedian.com, and uh, you can email me info at ComediansComedian.com if you would like to suggest guests, discuss things, or 
Well, whatever you like, really. I, I get back to everyone, eventually. If I haven't got back to you, you're one of literally 70 people that have been building up over the last eight years who are in a particular folder that says, do actually get back to these people. And I will suddenly pounce on you five years later. Uh, I have been known to do that. If you would like to join... God, that was a big breath, wasn't it? Finish a big sentence, then audibly go... <gasps> God, I mean, I'm, I don't know if I'm as unhealthy as I was, but that did not sound good. So the other thing I wanted to say was thank you for all of your questions for Mr. Alexi Sale. Uh, that interview was recorded yesterday and will come out next week. Uh, it was a joy to meet someone. I've rarely been so nervous before an episode because I hadn't realised how much of an effect, uh, not just his appearances on The Young Ones and his stand-up, but specifically Alexi Sale's stuff. Like I was 13-ish around the time of Alexi Sale's stuff. And it had such a profound effect on my understanding of comedy. Like with Mark Thomas, you know, I felt similarly meeting Mark Thomas. I was like, oh, you're part of the reason why I'm me. So it, it was a joy to talk to him. And uh, we've got a, a great big wadge of stuff from Alexi there. And um, thank you to all of you in the Comedians Comedian Facebook group who proffered questions. I asked as many of them as I could uh, crowbar in. Uh, and if you would like to be part of that sort of discussion for future guests, uh, other suggestions, or generally enjoying an incredibly nice bit of the internet uh, within which to discuss comedy in any kind of a way, uh, then you can join the Comedians Comedian Facebook group. Get on that. Your editor and producer was Nathan Wood. Jake Crossland did the logs. Podcast consultant was Peter Dobbing and Rob Smouten did the wonderful music. Thanks again to Angel Comedy. If you'd like to hang around, I shall post amble at you after the noise of a horse. Bye for now. Let's talk about Chops Comedy. I, I, I've, uh, I'm, I've started running a comedy club in conjunction with David Hoare, a fabulous Bristol musical comedian and non-musical comedian, and, uh, and also Tony C., who you might have heard me talk about on the show sort of sometime in the last couple of years. I'll make occasional references to Tony. Tony was a listener to ComCom, not just a listener, also a very good stand-up in his own right, living uh, based in Portland, Oregon. He's an actual American, ladies and gentlemen. And um, he got into the podcast and heard me talk about the secret Welsh festival that we all now openly call McHuntleth. And um, he came to that festival on a kind of a mad whim to come and check it out. Uh, we met and became friends and uh, he then ended up moving to Bristol sometime later. Not to live near me, I don't think, but um, for his own reasons. But he wanted to, to live in the UK and work over here. He set up some wonderful clubs, uh, notably The Trap in, in Bristol and The Lazy Dog as well. Two wonderful nights. He really knows what he's doing. And between the three of us, uh, myself, Tony and David have started a new material night in Bedminster in Bristol. It's called Chops Comedy uh, because it is based in Friendly Records and we got bored of trying to come up with a record-based pun. We got bored, I got bored and started throwing my weight around and cancelling uh, Tony's every attempt to uh, work in some horrific pun. If you're in the ComCom Facebook group, that's what that was all about. Um, but actually, it's also, as well as being a record shop, it's formerly a butcher's. And on the floor, it says pickling tank picked out in stonework. Um, so we thought Chops was quite a good name. So it's called Chops Comedy, and it's every Tuesday for the next two and a half months. We've had some banger gigs so far, uh, and if you're in the Bristol area, we're doing a sneaky thing whereby it uh, it's £3 in advance, and then as soon as we announce the headliner the weekend before the show, 
then the prices double. That's fun, isn't it? That's a fun thing. So you've got to affirm your lifetime commitment before you know who it is. So have a look on Facebook for Chops Comedy if you are in or near Bristol. Uh, I am only responsible for booking the headliners. So please do not email me. And they're all booked. <laughs> so this is, what, this is one of the things you may not know from outside comedy. If you ever put your head above the parrot bit and say, hey guys, I'm, I'm booking a gig or I'm connected somehow to booking a gig. Bang, inbox, completely full for the rest of your life. Um, do not contact the Comedians Comedian email address about anything to do with it. Um, but if you are a headliner, I am booking you and I've already booked all of you for this three-month trial run, at least uh, that we're a fortnight into. Um, I believe the uh, usual application process applies if you would like to come along and do open mic stuff, which is to say it's up to you to discover it and that's the first level of filter. What a life. Anyway, those have been great. Thanks to Ed Gamble, who came along and headlined for us yesterday. Uh, that was a lovely, lovely thing. And um, uh, a great joy to see Ed reading the Boutros several bedtime stories. <laughs> Mouth agape at my boy's incredible negotiating ability and uh, ability to stall and prevaricate <laughs> before actually going down to sleep. However... The next thing, and probably while you're hearing this, if you're a, if you're a, a, the sort of listener that likes to hungrily devour the episode immediately after release, I think I'm currently in South Africa. I'm not now. I'm currently in the van outside my house. But uh, I will probably, for some of you listening to this, uh, I will be in South Africa at the Cape Town Comedy Festival. I'm really looking forward to it. The lineup's extraordinary. Uh, Finn Taylor, Sindhu V, Laura Davis, Jeff Innocent. Um, we've got Alonzo Bodden's going to be there. Loads and loads of uh, the, the cream of uh, South African acts as well. So I'm really looking forward to appearing and hosting and, and being a gala here and there. And also doing a talk about comedy and creativity. Um, so if you're in Cape Town or anywhere near it, please make a beeline to that. That seems like uh, it's going to be an awful lot of fun. And then when I return from there, uh, I am going to be back home for a few days before I zip off once again to South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. So if you're going to be there, get in touch. Let me know. Info at comedianscomedian.com. And let's razz around on electric scooters chatting to dot-com billionaires and pretending we live in 2050. Uh, it would be lovely to meet any of you who are going to be out there and I will be returning uh, with some striking and wonderful episodes with uh, some genuinely brilliant American comics recorded live there. You'll know in the past we've had people like Roy Wood Jr. and Kathy Griffin and some real stonkers. So uh, lots of exciting stuff coming up there. And um, one or two other... What are the other things happening in my life right now? It's mostly all about finishing this recording, getting back inside and parenting like a fury before I have to go away for the best part of two weeks. So I'm going to go and do that. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.